to the Uncover Up. My name is Nathan Radke, and today I am joined in the bunker by the sneaking suspicion that while I am alone in the bunker, we are not alone in the universe. With so much going on in 2020, and so much of it being tiring and terrible, it was easy not to notice back in early August, when the American government admitted that it was still actively investigating UFO sightings, despite claiming in 2017 that UFO investigations had stopped. They also said that the videos of Navy F-18s chasing odd tic-tac-shaped objects through the skies over Earth's oceans were apparently legitimate videos. Or, to put it on a bumper sticker, the American government admitted that their fighter jets were chasing UFOs. Before we go any further, though, we have to set the stage with a bit of background. The phrase UFO was coined by Captain Edward Ruppelt, one of the early researchers into the flying saucer phenomenon in the early 1950s, and the only head of Project Blue Book that we here at the Uncover-Up have any respect for as anything other than just a public relations hack. Blue Book was the U.S. Air Force's official project looking into UFO sightings, and officially lasted from 1952 to 1970. Under Ruppelt's leadership, the underfunded and undersupported program was genuinely trying to figure out what was behind the strange flying objects that people were reporting. After Ruppelt left in 1953, the project mostly became a way for the Air Force to discredit UFO sightings and to discredit the people who saw them. We did a whole episode on it a few years ago. It's one of my personal favorites. One of the books that we always recommend for anyone interested in this topic is Ruppelt's The Report on Flying Saucers 1956 edition. When Ruppelt started using the phrase UFO, or as he wanted it pronounced UFO, he did so because it was more accurate and less leading than the phrase flying saucer. After all, not all the shapes people were seeing were saucer-shaped. Many were egg-shaped or cigar-shaped. And flying saucer seems too narrow to capture all of the reports that they were receiving. UFO simply means unidentified flying object. It doesn't mean that the object is extraterrestrial in origin, or that it isn't a natural phenomenon. It just means that there's something up in the sky and we're not sure what it is. The Navy has started using the acronym UAP for Unidentified Aerial Phenomenon, but we're retro here at the Uncover Up, so we'll keep using UFO. Historically, the American government, particularly the Air Force, has gone to some lengths to publicly downplay UFO sightings since the late 1940s. During the Cold War, this was done partly out of a concern that if the American public was too worried about aliens, it wouldn't be worried enough about the Soviet Union. But while publicly government agencies were dismissing UFOs as hoaxes, natural phenomena, and illusions, behind the scene there was a legitimate concern that they might pose a security threat. And another thing that has been happening behind the scenes for decades is that fighter pilots have been getting into dogfights with UFOs. And that's what today's episode is about. We're going to look at a few examples of times in which military aircraft had close encounters with something unexplainable in the sky. We'll start back in the 1940s and look at a few examples that'll get us up to the mid-1950s. For each one, we'll examine the aircraft involved, which makes me happy because it means I get to talk about airplanes, We'll look at the time of day, the number of witnesses, and the specifics of the event. Then we'll look at possible explanations for each one and decide which is the most likely. In general, pilots make some of the best eyewitnesses for UFOs. The sky is full of odd weather events, birds, and human-built aircraft. And those of us who spend most of our time on the ground aren't necessarily aware of or familiar with all of that noise. But pilots have to be in order to fly safely. 
And military pilots are even better informed than civilian pilots, since they also have a strong understanding of military-grade equipment and the capabilities they have. What might look bizarre and extraterrestrial to us, for example, a B-2 flying wing stealth bomber, would look very familiar to a military pilot. But there is a history dating back to at least World War II of military pilots encountering things in the sky that they couldn't explain. Sometimes it turns out that they had seen some new piece of tech or an experimental human-made craft. The first British and American pilots over Europe to see German jet fighters like the ME-262 didn't know what they were at first, although historical context led most of them to the conclusion that they were probably some kind of new and advanced German plane. But there were also countless examples of pilots encountering strange whites that did not react or behave like human-piloted craft. This happened often enough that these lights received a nickname, the pilots called them Foo Fighters, and they have yet to be entirely adequately explained. But to start with, we'll go forward in time a little from World War II, back to the evening of October 1st, 1948, where, in the skies over Fargo, North Dakota, an Air National Guard pilot got into a dogfight with a UFO. By 1948, the American public was well aware of the UFO phenomenon. In June of 1947, while flying over the mountains of Washington State, pilot Kenneth Arnold had seen unidentified craft skipping across the sky like saucers. In July of 1947, something crashed in a farmer's field near Roswell, New Mexico, and an official spokesman from the U.S. Army told reporters that it was a flying disc before changing the story to say that it was a weather balloon. And in January of 1948, Captain Thomas Mantell had been sent to intercept a UFO over the skies of Kentucky, and he was killed in that attempt. The official explanation from the Air Force was that Mantell was accidentally chasing the planet Venus, despite the fact that Venus would barely have been visible at that time of day, at that time of year. We did an episode on that event as well, which I recommend listening to. And that brings us to Fargo on that autumn evening in 1948. Lieutenant George Gorman, a 25-year-old World War II veteran, was flying alongside some of his fellow National Guardsmen in F-51 Mustang single-engine fighter planes. The F-51 was a holdover from World War II, back when it was still the P-51, and by 1948 it was getting to the end of its career as a frontline fighter plane, but it was still a reliable and maneuverable ride. Once the group arrived in Fargo, the other pilots descended and landed at Hector Airport. But because it was a nice clear evening, Gorman decided to stay in the air a little longer to practice his night flying, which in an F-51 was a bit tricky. It didn't have radar, and GPS of course wasn't even close to existing yet. It was basically just you, some wings, an engine, and six machine guns cruising around in the air. After about half an hour, Gorman was ready to land as well. Suddenly, on his right, what appeared to be the taillight from another airplane passed by his F-51. He radioed to the airport control tower and was told that there was another aircraft nearby, a small Piper Cub single-engine plane. Here are Gorman's own words about what happened next. I was cleared by the tower to land when I noticed what seemed to be the taillight of another plane about 1,000 yards away. I queried the tower and they told me the only other aircraft over the field was a Piper Cub. This little plane I could plainly see outlined below me. It was not the one I had noticed. I looked again and I could not see any outline of anything around the moving light. I decided to take a close-up look at it. It was about 8 inches in diameter, clear white, and completely round with a sort of fuzz at the edges. But as I approached, the light suddenly became steady and pulled into a sharp bend. I thought it was making a pass at the tower. I dived after it, but I couldn't catch up to the thing. It started gaining altitude and again made a left bank. I now put my F-51 into a sharp turn and tried to cut off the light in my turn. By then we were at 7,000 feet. 
Suddenly, the thing made a sharp turn, and we headed straight for each other. At this point, Gorman put his F-51 into a sharp dive, and the light cleared the top of his canopy by only a few feet. Gorman banked around to pursue the light, and again had to dive to avoid colliding with it. Then the light climbed away from Gorman and disappeared, and Gorman landed his plane. Four other people observed this dogfight. The pilot of the Cub, a Dr. Cannon, and his passenger, a Mr. Nielsen, both observed a fast-moving light, but were unable to describe the maneuvering in much detail. Two Civil Aviation Authority employees were on the ground, and they also reported seeing the light that Gorman described as it flew over the airport. In 1948, Project Blue Book didn't exist yet, but its predecessor did. It was called Project Sign, and like Blue Book, it was tasked with investigating UFO sightings. After Gorman reported to his commanders what had happened to him, members of Project Sign were immediately flown to Fargo. They interviewed Gorman, Cannon, Nielsen, and the two CAA employees. They also ran a Geiger counter over Gorman's F-51 and found elevated levels of radiation compared to similar planes that had been sitting on the runway for a few days. Gorman himself was convinced that there had been some sort of intelligence behind the UFO he had tangled with, telling Project Sign investigators, quote, I had the distinct impression that its maneuvers were controlled by thought or reason. End quote. So now let's analyze this encounter. We can dismiss the idea that Gorman was lying about what happened to him almost immediately. The light that he saw was also seen by four other observers who didn't know Gorman and would be unlikely to have any reason to go along with a story that he was just making up. Having multiple witnesses also means that we can throw out other common explanations, including glare reflecting off the inside of his glass canopy, or visual disturbances or hallucinations caused by neurological or chemical reasons. So what about a natural phenomenon? There are several natural sources that are frequently blamed for UFO sightings. In this case, Venus isn't even an option, since Gorman was able to fly a circle around the light, seeing it out of both the starboard and port sides of his canopy. A meteor blazes across the sky extremely quickly. It doesn't hang around the sky over an airport. What about something like ball lightning? This is when, instead of arcing down in a fork, lightning takes the shape of a ball and rolls around in the sky, as terrifying as that sounds. I was surprised to discover when I was researching this episode that ball lightning isn't even a phenomenon that scientists are willing to admit definitely exists yet. But regardless, reports of ball lightning indicate that if it does exist, it doesn't stay as stable as long as Gorman's UFO did. So how about some top-secret American Air Force or CIA tech that Gorman just didn't know about? A spoiler alert for the Captain Mantell episode that we recorded, but that probably was what Mantell was chasing across the Kentucky sky. That's always a possibility, since we civilians don't get to hear about things like that for years or even decades. However, if it was something the Air Force was experimenting with back then, it's likely we probably would have heard about it by now over 70 years later, as we know about Project Skyhook, U-2 and SR-71 spy planes, and other top-secret tech from the early Cold War. Now there's another option, and uh, Lee is not going to like it when he hears it, because it's his least favorite UFO explanation. What if it was a weather balloon? The encounter was at night when it's easy to become confused and disoriented, and the light described by Gorman resembles the light attached to weather balloons. Why would he have been so sure that it was maneuvering as if it were piloted? Well, that could have been an illusion. With no other frame of reference in the night sky, as he flew towards it, it would have looked as if it was flying towards him. The frantic turns and dives he performed would have made it look, from his perspective, that the light was reacting to his moves. Most significantly, 
According to the Air Weather Service, a weather balloon had just been released in the area a few minutes before Gorman saw the small light in the sky. But what about the radiation the researchers detected on Gorman's plane? Well, that was just a natural consequence of being exposed to solar rays during a long, high-altitude flight, which is why the aircraft on the ground that hadn't flown in a while didn't give off similar levels of radiation. So, at least for this particular dogfight, we can say that the tired old explanation of weather balloon might actually be accurate. But this wasn't the last dogfight the Air Force would have with this kind of UFO. At 10.58pm on June 21st, 1952, an alarm went off at a top-secret nuclear laboratory in Oak Ridge, Tennessee. Some kind of unauthorized craft had just been spotted by a ground observer corps spotter entering the tightly controlled airspace over the lab, and the officers working the radar picked up something on their scope. An F-47 Thunderbolt was in the area on combat air patrol, and it was vectored onto the target. The F-47 was another surplus World War II propeller-driven fighter plane, less agile and advanced than an F-51, but harder-hitting and tougher. The pilot made visual contact with the light in the sky and proceeded to dogfight with it from 10,000 to 27,000 feet. According to the pilot of the F-47, at several points in the heated exchange, the unidentified craft attempted to ram him. Eventually, the pilot lost visual contact with the target, and it disappeared off of the radar screens on the ground. The pilot reported to investigators that the light was about 8 inches in diameter, and he couldn't make out any kind of silhouette or shape that the light was attached to. Just half a year later, on the night of December 10, 1952, over another atomic installation in Washington state, the radar operator of a patrolling F-94 fighter plane detected a target in an area where there shouldn't have been any other aircraft. Vectoring in on the signal, both the radar operator and the pilot of the advanced jet interceptor made visual contact with a light in the sky. Getting closer, they saw a large, round, white object in the air that appeared to have two windows. Again, it appeared to attempt ramming attacks against the fighter jet, and after a few close calls, the pilot lost sight of it, although it remained on their radar screens for a little while after that. In both of these cases, we have experienced aircrew. The F-47 was a pretty basic plane with very little high-tech equipment, but the F-94 was a top-of-the-line interceptor with onboard radar. In both cases, there was visual confirmation of an object by several observers and radar confirmation. In the Oak Ridge case, the radar confirmation came from operators on the ground. Having two kinds of contact and multiple witnesses again virtually eliminates the chance that either the object was an optical illusion or an equipment malfunction. So there was clearly something in the sky in both cases. Now this time, having learned my lesson from the Gorman dogfight and seeing a lot of similarities in the way the objects were described, I went straight to the weather balloon explanation, much to Lee's chagrin, I'm sure. And again, examining weather balloon releases and wind patterns at the time, a weather balloon was likely over the Oak Ridge Laboratory on June 21st, and a skyhook balloon, which is a large, round, white object, was over the Washington State Atomic Site. Of course, just because large balloons were in the area of all three dogfights doesn't necessarily mean that the pilots were all definitely, unknowingly tangling with balloons, but it does make the balloon hypothesis the most likely, since we know there were balloons in the area, and the description of the encounter matches what you would expect if the pilots were actually attacking balloons, without knowing it. In fact, another UFO dogfight happened a little earlier than the Washington State event, on the night of September 24, 1952, over Cuba. A pilot in a TBM Avenger torpedo bomber encountered an unidentified light and got into a rumble with it. Here's some of his report, made immediately after he landed. I apologize for some of the technical language, but I think you'll get the gist of what the pilot went through. 
As it approached the city from the east, it started a left turn. I started to intercept. During the first part of the chase, the closest I got was 8 to 10 miles. At this time, it appeared to be as large as an SNJ. Uh, brief aside, this refers to a single, uh, like a small single-engine propeller plane. And had a greenish tail that looked to be five to six times as long as the light's diameter. The tail was seen several times in the next 10 minutes in periods from 5 to 30 seconds each. As I reached 10,000 feet, it appeared to be at 15,000 feet and in a left turn. It took 40 degrees of bank to keep the nose of my plane on the light. At this time, I estimated the light to be in a 10 to 15 mile orbit. At 12,000 feet, I stopped climbing, but the light was still climbing faster than I was. I then reversed my turn from left to right, and the light also reversed. As I was not gaining distance, I held a steady course south trying to estimate a perpendicular between the light and myself. The light was moving north, so I turned north. As I turned, the light appeared to move west, then south over the base. I again tried to intercept, but the light appeared to climb rapidly at a 60 degree angle. I climbed to 35,000 feet, then started a rapid descent. Prior to this, while the light was still at approximately 15,000 feet, I deliberately placed it between the moon and myself three times to try to identify a solid body. I and my two crewmen all had a good view of the light as it passed the moon. We could see no solid body. We considered the fact that it could be an aerologist's balloon, but we did not see a silhouette. Also, we would have rapidly caught up with and passed a balloon. During its descent, the light appeared to slow down to about 10,000 feet, at which time I made three runs on it. Two were on a 90-degree collision course, and the light traveled at tremendous speed across my bow. On the third run, I was so close that the light blanked out the airfield below me. Suddenly, it started to dive, and I followed, losing it at 1,500 feet. This is about as good a witness as you can get. As he is in the heat of the pursuit, he even considers the possibility that it might be a balloon, and he tests that theory by trying to see it against the moon. However, the next evening, the Navy deliberately sent up a weather balloon and asked the pilot to intercept it and compare his experiences. After landing, he told Navy officials that chasing the balloon was a very similar experience to his dogfight the night before. Is it possible that weather balloons are being used as cover-ups in each of these cases? Of course. But there's nothing in these incidents that provides us with any evidence against the balloon hypothesis. Occam's razor is often misquoted and misused, but it's still a helpful tool when comparing explanations. What it actually says is, entities should not be multiplied without necessity. That means that if you have one explanation that makes sense based on the information that you already have, that explanation is more likely than one in which you have to make more assumptions and speculations. So if we know that a balloon is in the area, and we know that a balloon could explain the data and observations, then that ex explanation is likely better than an explanation in which we also have to make guesses about unknown causes that are unnecessary to explain the data and observations. The problem with Occam's razor is that it is often used as a law rather than as a useful tool, and it is often misquoted as, quote, the simplest explanation is most likely the right one, end quote. The world is very rarely simple, so looking for the simplest explanation can lead us astray. In addition, we shouldn't be too hasty in looking to the familiar and the known when we are trying to explain a phenomenon, particularly since there is so much about the universe that we don't know. Here's an example when a misapplication of Occam's razor likely led to an inaccurate assessment. On March 8, 1950, an airliner was landing at the Dayton Municipal Airport. As he was circling around, the pilot saw a bright light in the sky. He called the control tower, and the tower told him that they were watching it too. The Air National Guard had planes and crew at the airport, so a pilot geared up and jumped into his F-51 to pursue the object. 
Nearby Wright Patterson Air Force Base, which is the base out of which Project Blue Book was run, also scrambled an F-51 and picked the object up on ground-based radar. The two fighter planes reached 12,000 feet, then the pilots lost the object in cloud cover and the plane started icing up. They were forced to descend and the ground-based radar reported that they were also losing the object on their scopes. The official explanation, going with the simplest one, said that since the light was in the southeast and Venus was in the southeast, the light was Venus. And since there were icy clouds in the area, and since icy clouds can reflect radar beams, the image on the scope was clouds, and the case was closed. Nice and tidy and simple. However, Captain Ruppelt was still in charge of Blue Book at this point, and he was unsatisfied with the official explanation. He was concerned about something called confirmation, confirmation bias, bias, in which we tend to look for evidence that confirms our hypothesis instead of also considering evidence that goes against what we think is true. So Ruppelt talked to the radar operator, who agreed that icy clouds could give off a radar signal. But the operator also said that in his entire career he had never seen any kind of weather event that resulted in such a solid radar return as he had seen that day, and that every other weather anomaly had produced a fuzzy image on his scope. The operator did not believe that the cloud explanation was accurate. Nor did the F-51 pilots when Ruppelt interviewed them. They stated that as they were climbing the object was getting larger and more distinct, which would not have happened if the object was actually Venus, which is over 160 million kilometers away. In addition, the pilots looked for Venus the next day in the same part of the sky, and it wasn't there. The official explanation in this case is the simplest one, and it is also likely incorrect. Let's look at one more encounter, one in which there can be no simple explanation. This one took place over the Davis-Monthan Air Force Base in Tucson, Arizona at 9 in the morning on May 1st, 1952. A B-36 bomber was flying over the base as Master Sergeant Edmund Bolton Jr. emerged from the base hospital on the ground. As the airman watched the enormous aircraft fly by at approximately 20,000 feet, he saw two silent, shiny, round objects overtake the plane and then fly alongside of it for about 20 seconds. The objects were saucer-shaped, about 25 feet long and wide, and maybe 12 feet tall. Bolton called the objects to the attention of Major Rudy Pestalozzi, who also observed the saucer-shaped craft. Meanwhile, in the bomber, the crew had also noticed the saucer-shaped objects, and with the exception of the pilot who stayed in the cockpit to fly the plane, the rest of the crew had gathered by a large observation window on the side of the fuselage of the plane to watch the objects. After a few minutes, both objects took abrupt turns away from the bomber, picked up speed, and flew away from visual contact. What are we to make of this event? Again, there were multiple witnesses, which vastly reduces the chances that it was caused by illusion, delusion, or that the entire encounter was simply made up. Unlike the balloon examples, this took place during daylight and visibility was excellent. There is no known natural phenomenon that would explain these observations, although of course there is always the possibility of a natural phenomenon outside of our field of knowledge that could explain it. There were several saucer-shaped aircraft in the works in the 1940s, 50s, and 60s, including the Horton Flying Wings, the Avro Car, the Vought V-153 Flying Pancake, and the XF-5U Flying Flapjack. None of those aircraft would have been capable of the maneuvers witnessed by the crew in the plane or the men on the ground. So what are we left with in this case? We are left with a limitation to our understanding. All that I could do at this point is speculate, and thanks to the massive gulf between my knowledge and the truth behind these events, my speculation wouldn't be worth much. Instead, 
we have to adopt some philosophical humility and admit that, for now, we are left with UFOs in the true sense of the acronym, Unidentified Flying Objects. Which I find both exciting and frustrating. And in future episodes, we will lean into both my excitement and my frustration and look at some of the more recent run-ins between aircraft and strange objects and try to continue to narrow down the possibilities as to what could be causing these encounters. And we'll also consider the possibility that maybe, maybe, some of these objects may have an extraterrestrial origin.